Uh, about five years ago, our church decided to host an event for our neighborhood and uh, during the Easter season. And so we, we came up with the idea for what is now the Easter extravaganza. So five years ago, we said, hey, what does our church do at Easter? We don't really do anything. We should do something for our community. So we came up with the idea for the Easter extravaganza. And at that time, our church was about 30 adults. That was about the size of our church. And we didn't have a lot of money. Our church didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and quite frankly, the future of our church was a little bit uncertain. How, can we survive? Or, you know, what kind of church are we? But we were hopeful. We were hopeful that by hosting this event, this Easter extravaganza, that we could show our neighbors that we value them, uh, that we value their family, and that we want to give them a gift of having a good time with their family, and we wanted to offer that to our community. And, and so this was a big deal for us. We were excited about this, and we had a prayer night the week before the first Easter extravaganza that we did. And I remember at that prayer gathering, I thought I was some great leader and some great vision caster. I had this vision for this great thing. And I remember telling our team, our volunteers, I say, guys, let's pray for something crazy. Let's ask God for 50 people, 50 people to come to our Easter extravaganza. And that felt like at that time, at that sort of juncture in our church's history, that felt like a major prayer. And so we all got together in our office space and we prayed. We said, God, would you give us 50 of our neighbors? We want to serve 50 of our neighbors on Saturday or whenever it was. We want to serve 50 of our neighbors. That would be a huge success. And so we prayed. Well, the day of the event came, and I was actually still at my apartment. My wife, she wanted to volunteer, so she went and volunteered with the setup team and all of that, and I was at home with our, at the time, two kids. And so I was just getting ready to head over to Owl's Head. I was, you know, taking my time that morning, hoping that, you know, maybe this event will be good. We'll see. Who knows? And then my wife called me, and she said, Will, you need to get down here right now. I said, what's going on? She said, there are 400 people lined up for registration. We don't have enough eggs. We need more plastic eggs. And this was an hour before the event was supposed to start. There were 400 people lined up. And some of you guys remember this. If you were there, raise your hand. If you were around, yes. So you know, I'm not lying. This is the truth. And this was an hour before the event was about to start. And so I said, okay, I had my two kids and I, they were young and I grabbed our double stroller. Those things are not fun to push around the city. They're, they're pretty heavy. And I started running around the neighborhood, running as fast as I could. Now, I'm a runner, but, you know, th there was a lot of stress involved here. And I was going to every pharmacy, every 99-cent store to buy plastic eggs. I bought out Bay Ridge, Brooklyn of plastic eggs. And it was the day before Easter, so you know they were overpriced. And you know CVS is going to charge, you know, like 15 bucks for like 12 eggs. I, I mean, we emptied the church budget on eggs in like 40 minutes. And if you can imagine me, I'm not kidding. I stopped in every, every store. If you can imagine me pushing a double stroller with just bags and bags piled on top of my kids, hanging from the handlebars, just thousands of eggs. I bought every egg I could find. And my wife calls me. She says, where are you? I said, I'm getting eggs. You were doing what you told me to do. I'm trying to get there. And she said, they're still coming. She said, there's another 200 people in line. And at that point, I was like, there's no more eggs to buy. 
Like, there's no more eggs in this, this neighborhood. And so we're all panicking a little bit, and we're like, you know, if this is a bad event, like, that's not going to be a good thing because you know how mean people are on Facebook? You know how mean people are with Google reviews? And you're like, man, one bad event, some kid's not going to get an Easter egg at the Easter egg hunt, and then his parents going to write this terrible thing on Facebook or on Google reviews, and I, bad PR for our church, we're going under. This is it. This is, it was great. It was a great run while it lasted. Our church is over. I thought, if we don't, if we don't get enough eggs... And so what I did, I called a dear friend of mine uh, at a previous church that I was a pastor at. There was a senior adult woman named Miss Susie Howell. And we use the term prayer warrior. Like this was, if you've ever met somebody whose like knees have rug burns because they pray so often, this is Miss Susie. And I called Miss Susie. I said, hey, Miss Susie. And she was shocked to hear from me, you know, on a Saturday morning. She's like, Will, is everything okay? I said, hey, Miss Susie, do you know how in the Bible there's that account of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish? She's like, yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Um, I said, well, I need you to pray that God will multiply plastic eggs. And I said, I don't have time to explain. I just need you to pray this. And Miss Susie prayed with me over the phone. And she said, you know what, Will, as soon as I get off the phone, I'm going to call all my Sunday school class, or she called all these senior adult friends of hers, and we had just an army of senior adult women praying that God would multiply plastic eggs. And what do you know, in the end, we had over a thousand people that showed up for our Easter extravaganza, and there were enough eggs. Every kid went home happy, to my knowledge, parents raved about it on Facebook. That next Sunday, we had over 100 people in worship for what I believe was the first time in the history of our church, perhaps. And after that, our church began to grow in a way that we had never experienced before. And that event has grown every single year, year over year, except for last year with COVID. We prayed for 50 people, and God gave us 1,000, and He supplied the eggs. In Philippians 4.19, the Apostle Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's a great verse, isn't it? Like, if you're into tattoos, that's a good one to get. Josh, that's the next tattoo. Dad's like, no, no more. That's a good verse to tattoo on your body right there. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Look good on a coffee mug or an Instagram post too if you, if you don't want to commit too much. My God will supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus. It's a great verse, but let me ask you a question. How deeply do you really believe it? And if you really believed that, what kind of difference would that make in your life? Do you think you would be so anxious? Do you think you would be so afraid if you really believed that in Christ, God will provide all the riches you need? We're looking at John chapter 6 today. It's a familiar story. I alluded to it just a moment ago. It's Jesus feeding the multitudes. And many of you, if you grew up around church, you may be familiar with this story, but I want to beg you not to let your familiarity with this story blind you to the incredible truth that it teaches. It teaches a very simple lesson, and it's this. God provides. God provides. John chapter 6 Verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. 
And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus turned and said to Philip, Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus said this to test Philip, for he himself knew what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of these people to get just a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. Again, he has a habit of doing this when people start coming for him, to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea. They got in a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Jesus feeding the multitudes and then walking on water. Jesus feeding the multitudes, in fact, is the only miracle aside from the resurrection that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of the gospel writers, they all have their own unique perspective and they're all writing a biography about Jesus' life from their vantage point and they all felt that it was important enough to share the story of Jesus feeding the multitude. So this is a significant account of Jesus' life. And what do we learn from this passage? I said earlier it's a simple lesson and it's this. The lesson is God provides. You see, the problem that the disciples and Jesus faced in this account is that there's a large crowd of hungry people and there's no way to feed them. That's not, a, that's not a fun situation to be in. If you're a caterer, event planner, or whatever, you know. Large crowds of people can be stress-inducing. The text says that there were 5,000 men. And they had followed Jesus to the Sea of Tiberias. And I used to wonder, I was like, how are all these people just in the, like Galilee? Like, what are they doing there? Well, it was Passover. And so everyone was traveling to Jerusalem. But they, as these people, as they're walking to Jerusalem, they've heard rumors about this guy, Jesus. This guy, Jesus, who's performing miracles and healing the sick. And so they think, all these people, they think, well, hey, on our way to Jerusalem, we're going to make a pit stop in Galilee to see if we can catch a glimpse of this Jesus guy. And they found him, it says. 5,000 people, 5,000 men were crowding and coming toward Jesus. They wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to hear his teachings. Now, it's worth noting also, that only the men are recorded here. It says 5,000 men. And virtually every New Testament scholar says that in reality, uh, this is not including the women and children. So it would have been far more than just 5,000. It might have been anywhere from 10 to 15,000. Some scholars even say maybe perhaps even 20,000. So this is Barclays Center worth of people. And they were hungry. And what happens when a lot of people are hungry for too long? There's a word for it. Hangry. 
all right? And the disciples recognize this. They're like, oh, we don't want the, this is going to be a nightmare if everybody gets upset. There's not enough food. And so this was a dilemma. How is Jesus going to solve this dilemma? Jesus turns to Philip and he says, hey, Philip, where are we going to get enough, where, where are we going to buy bread for these people? And it says, verse 6, I love this. It says, it's, Jesus said this to test Philip. For Jesus already knew what he was going to do. And here we find out the personality of Philip. Notice how he responds. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of these people to get even a little. 200 denarii is like an average person's, like an entire year's wage. So he's like, you couldn't even empty your, your, in, your salary, and you couldn't even get a snack for these people for this much. So Philip, you learn a little bit about his personality. Philip is a very practical guy. He's a numbers guy. He looks at statistics. When he faces a problem, he's the guy who makes a spreadsheet. You know those type of people? I do. I work with one. You know him. His name's Pastor Kyle. <laughs> Philip's the type of guy, sees a problem, he makes policies, procedures, and tries to tackle the problems systematically by looking kind of at the big picture. And I'm so grateful for Kyle because I don't see the, those sort of things. And when Kyle's not around, things just fall apart. We're grateful for Kyle. Everybody give Kyle a thank you. We love you, Kyle. So Philip's practical here, and he says, Jesus says to Philip, he says, Philip, uh, how are we going to feed these people? And Philip says, uh, Jesus, it's not in the budget. It's not in the budget. There's no way to, there is no way. It can't be done. There's no way to provide food for all these people. It's just not possible. And many of us, when faced with a problem, what we immediately do is we immediately crunch the numbers. And we decide whether something is possible or not based on what we can see. And it's good to be around practical people. You want practical people in your life. But Jesus is testing Philip here. He doesn't care about Philip's budget or procedures. I'm sure Jesus loved that, those things about Philip. He loved his organization. But in this moment, Jesus doesn't care about Peter, Phil, or Philip's pragmatism. He wants to know the size of Philip's faith. And many times when you and I are in seemingly impossible situations, what God wants to see in us is the size of our faith. And that's how Philip responds. He says, we don't have the budget. But in Mark's gospel, it actually records how the rest of the disciples responded. Mark chapter 6, verse 36, the disciples say, Jesus, we got to send these people away. we got to get them out of here into the surrounding countryside and villages so they can buy themselves something to eat. The disciples essentially said, send them to all these little small villages and let the villagers worry about it. Not my problem is what the disciples said. <laughs> Their response, the rest of the disciples, when they see a problem that's too big, is just ignore it. I tend to do that. You know, if I don't open the envelope, then the bill won't have to get paid. You know, you think that, but you're like, it doesn't work that way. And they say, send the people away. It's not our problem. And I think many of us, we do the same thing. When we look at a problem and it just looks too big for us and it kind of stresses us out, we kind of freeze, don't we? Or, you know, what's the, the, the psychologists say when you experience panic, you fight, flight, or freeze. This is flight and freeze. This is like, I'm, I, I'm ignoring it, and I'm running away from it. Or we'll push it on someone else when we see a big problem. And the thing is, that doesn't solve the problem. In fact, it usually makes the problem more difficult down the road. So you've got both Philip and the disciples. They see this problem of these people that need to eat, and they see their limitations, and they assume that nothing can be done. Our limitations in the face of our problems can be crushing, can it? You face a problem, 
you're facing something very difficult, and you're going, this is my problem. Here are my limitations. It doesn't match up. There's, I can't do this. And we, 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 we love to know. We're, we're comfortable when we know that we have enough. Enough to cover the deficits. Enough to overcome the problems. But I'm telling you, if you live long enough, you know there will be times in your life when you don't have enough. You're too limited. You don't have enough skill or talent. You don't have enough money. You don't have enough resources. Not enough. Have any of you ever felt not enough? We've all felt not enough. Not enough Easter eggs for the extravaganza. I'm not enough. I don't have enough to parent the special needs child. Or I don't have enough to be a single parent. Or I don't have enough in me to make it through this loss that I've just experienced. Or I don't have enough to cover the expense. Or I, I must not be enough to be loved. Or I'm just not enough to make a difference. I'll let everybody else do their thing, but I'll just sit here quietly, isolated, because I, I can't make a difference. Not enough, not enough. This is a problem that we all encounter. Feelings of not enough. Sometimes realities of not enough. And in the face of not enough, how do we approach the problem? That's the question. Do we take on Philip's pragmatism? This will never work. It's not in the budget. Do we do what the disciples did? I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to run away from it and hope it goes away. Neither of those are good options. And there's another approach. There's Andrew. There's another disciple here. His name is Andrew. And while Philip is crunching the numbers, and while Peter and the rest of the guys are trying to run away from the problem, you know what Andrew does? He goes into the crowd. Andrew runs into the crowd. It says, verse 8, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. So Andrew comes back. Jesus is quizzing Philip. And Andrew's like, hey, Jesus... Here's a boy with five barley loaves. And keep in mind, barley was the bread of the poor. If you had money, you would eat wheat bread. Barley was for, for the poor. So this is a very unimpressive meal. And not only that, it's a meal for a child. It's a lunchable or a happy meal. And at this point, Andrew, he says, Jesus, we've got the, these, these barley loaves and we've got this fish. And at this point, you're thinking, man, Andrew gets it, man. Man of great faith, Andrew, he gets it. But then Andrew, he says, eh, but then again, what is a basket of bread and a fish for so many people? Andrew starts out with this big, bold, audacious faith, and then it kind of trails off as he gets halfway through the sentence. But I love what Jesus does with this little boy's humble meal and Andrew's very small amount of faith. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And it says he multiplied it and he fed every person their fill. And there were leftovers to be taken when it was over. A humble gift from a child and a small seed of faith from Andrew. And Jesus provides for the crowds far more than they even needed. And when I read this passage, I think of that night where we prayed for 50 people. Like we thought 50 people at the Easter extravaganza would just be like, just would be unbelievable. And that felt, in that moment, in that room, for those of you who were there, it felt like huge faith on our part in that moment. And God was looking, he's like, can you think that's big faith? 
Like it was, it felt like big faith to us, but in reality, in God's economy, it was just the littlest, smallest little mustard seed of faith. And God took it and he multiplied it. Twentyfold. Is my math right? Twentyfold. And I think, our, I think of our church right now in the season that we're currently in. Here we are, we're looking for a permanent facility of our own. We're looking for a permanent facility in Brooklyn. Now, do the math. How does a church of less than 200 people afford a permanent facility in Brooklyn? If Philip were here, he would say, it's not in the budget. He'd say, it's not in the budget. But here's what I believe. I believe that God is going to take our faith, faith that he can provide, and I believe he's going to take our gifts, our little five barley loaves and our fish. Right now we have about $278,000 in an opportunity fund should the day come when we, when we want to purchase a space. And that, in my math, that's not enough for a down payment. We need more. But I believe that God is going to multiply that fund through your generosity. It may be five bucks from some of you. And it may be 50000 from some one of you. Whatever it is, no gift, large or small, is small in, the, in God's economy. Because God takes what we give and He multiplies it for His glory and His renown. And I do believe, just like God provided for that Easter extravaganza, God is going to provide for us a facility. When? Where? I don't know. But I be, I'm believing in faith that He will. And I think so many of you, you're facing a problem in your life right now of not enough. You don't have enough strength. You don't have enough resources. You don't have enough understanding. You don't have enough people around you. You don't have enough skills. Whatever, I believe that if you have little faith, that's all it takes. Faith, God will provide. He may not provide exactly like you asked for. He may not provide exactly when, but He will provide because that is His name. God provides. So that's the lesson God provides. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus gives his disciples an exam. Okay, A good teacher knows you can't just give a bunch of lectures. You've got to test your, your students on what you taught at some point. And so Jesus decides to give his disciples an exam. And he's going to see if this lesson that he provides has made its way from their heads into their hearts. And he gives them an opportunity to pass the test. So if the lesson is God provides the exam for you and me, is will you trust him to provide? Later that night, the disciples, they got into a boat. Jesus said, look, too many people coming after me. I need to go pray, which is another sermon right there. But if Jesus needed to withdraw and pray, you're not too important to take some time and spend some time with your heavenly father. The work can wait. Spend some time with the Lord. That's what Jesus did. But Jesus withdrew, and the disciples were like, well, he ain't coming. We've we got to get to the other side of the thing. So they start rowing across the Sea of Galilee. And it says they got about three to four miles, which if you've ever seen the Sea of Galilee, it's, a big, it's not a sea, it's a lake, but it's a big lake. Three to four miles puts them about right in the middle of it. So they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and it says they're alone, and it's dark. And you've got to understand that in a first century, you know, uh, they didn't have fueled boats. They didn't have gasoline-powered boats. I mean... If you got out in the middle of the sea in the dark and there were waves, it was, it, was a, it was scary, scary stuff. And so the sea represented darkness. It represented death to them. And it's, verse 17 says, It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. 
You ever had that feeling? God, it is dark all around me. And you haven't come to me yet. Where are you? I mean, if we're honest, anybody pray that prayer? You're like, it's dark in my life, but he's nowhere to be found. Where is he? Verse 18 says, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. I know many of you have been there as well. It feels like a strong wind in your life. Rough waters. It feels like everything around you is choppy. Like you can't seem to get your footing. You feel like you're slipping. This is how the disciples felt. They had just seen Jesus provide though. The question now is, will they have faith to trust Him in this storm? Have they really learned that God provides yet? And it says in verse 19 that they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But Jesus said to them, hey, it's I. Do not be be afraid. And it says they were glad to take Him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. And so what we see here is that in some ways they passed the exam. Yes, they were afraid. And yes, they knew that they did not have enough strength in themselves to conquer the storm. Their boat was not enough. Their strength was not enough. But they saw Jesus of Nazareth out on the water. And Jesus is enough. And they knew that because they had seen it. And they welcomed him into the boat. Listen to me. Storms will come in your life. I'm looking at some of the faces. There are some storms that many of you in this church have weathered. And in the storms, and some of you, you haven't faced them yet, but you will. And what you need to know now is that in the storms, we must remember the faithfulness of God because what we will feel in the storms is that it's dark and Jesus has not come to us yet. But the truth is, He's out on the water in the storm with you. And He will either, A, calm the storm, or He will calm you in the storm. And that's what He did for the disciples here. Listen, let me just be honest myself right now. This has been a hard year for our church. This hasn't been a fun year to be a pastor. Hasn't been a fun year to be a restaurant owner. Hasn't been a fun year to be a school teacher. Hasn't been a fun year to be a parent. Hasn't been a fun year to be a lot of things. But it hasn't been a fun year to be a pastor either. It's been a hard year for our church. We haven't been able to meet together for a while. That's been a real bummer. Do you know how much I hate preaching to a camera in my living room? I hated it. Not being able to meet together for a while, that's hard. Even now, we're not all together. Many of you are watching online. We're so glad you're with us online. And even those who are in here, you know it's not the same. The masks and the spreading out and we don't have bagels out there. You know, like it's just not the same. And I confess that there have been many, many times where I've wondered throughout this whole pandemic, how are we going to make it out of this? How is our church going to make it out of this thing? Is God going to come through? I've thought that many times. But I have kept on and kept on remembering that 2016 Easter extravaganza. God provided for our little tiny church then and He gave us more than we asked for or even imagined. Not only that, He supplied the eggs. And will He get us through the storms that we face now? I have no choice but to believe that He will because God has been faithful before and I believe He'll be faithful now. Because He is a God who takes our little bitty tiny mustard seed faith 
and multiplies it to do amazing things. Jesus turned a cross into a crown. He turned death into new life. This is our God. And whatever storms you face, whatever hunger you feel, whatever not enoughs are in your life, you can be confident today that Jesus is enough. And as Philippians 4.19 says, He supplies every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for you, Crossroads. God, we thank You that You provide. That is Your name. God provides. And God, let that be the truth that we cling to in the storms and in the hunger. God, give us the strength to trust that You can satisfy us. Give us the strength to trust that You can calm our storms Or at the very least, you can calm us in the storms. God, you turned death into resurrection. And God, we believe that you can turn our lives into something great for your glory. And God, I just want to pray for our church right now. God, we want to pray for our Easter extravaganza that's next weekend. Would you bless it this year in the same way that you've blessed it in years past? But God, I also want to pray for our church We're so thankful for First Evangelical Free and the High School of Telecommunications and all the places that have allowed us to meet in their space, the Guild for Exceptional Children over recent years. God, we're grateful that you've provided spaces for us to meet when we need it. But God, we're asking that you would give us a permanent facility. We have $278,000, which for a church our size feels like just you've already produced a miracle. But God, we know that a building in this neighborhood, we're going to need more. But God, we trust that you'll supply it. We trust that you'll supply us with a place to worship, a place where we can feed the hungry, clothe the poor, a place where we can minister to our children and to our community and to our neighbors. God, we have all these ideas and visions for what a permanent facility could mean for our church, but God, we are trusting you to provide. And so God, we ask that you will. Our faith may be very small like Andrew's, and what we have may be very little like that little boy's lunch, but God, we believe you're a big God and that you can supply our needs in accordance with the riches of Christ. And so we thank you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.